If a regime in Beijing that is as strong and powerful as we think it is, uh, is worried about the actions of you know, one very unimportant individual like me uh, in London, that suggests that it's, uh, it, it's more insecure than we perhaps realize. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. June 4th marked the 34th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, in which the Chinese Communist Party put down a pro-democracy protest movement that had bubbled up in Tiananmen Square and throughout mainland China. For many, it served as a stark reminder of the brutality of the country that, under the autocratic leadership of Mao Zedong, killed between 40 to 80 million of its own people, that it could still be just as brutal. Tiananmen happened just three years before Benedict Rogers moved to China to begin teaching English. For Rogers, this marked the beginning of a professional career focused on issues in and around China and Hong Kong. That saw him work as a journalist in Hong Kong for the first five years after the handover, to traveling to China's borders with Burma and North Korea to document the plight of refugees escaping from Beijing-backed satellite dictatorships, and then campaigning for human rights in China, especially for Uyghurs, Christians, and Falun Gong practitioners, human rights defenders, journalists and dissidents, and the people of Hong Kong. Rogers, who today runs the organization Hong Kong Watch, a watchdog organization which researches and monitors threats to Hong Kong's basic freedoms, the rule of law, and autonomy as promised under the one country, two systems principle, which is enshrined in the basic law and the Sino-British Joint Declaration, is the author of the new book, The China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. In the book, Rogers takes the readers on a journey through some of the leaders and participants in human rights activities that China has suppressed since its inception in 1949. He goes on to dispute and lays to rest all of the specious claims by tyrants in Beijing that all Chinese citizens are equal and are afforded human and civil rights. Currently, the regime is engaged in re-education, cultural assimilation, and multiple genocides, leading to better citizens for China and the world if one believes Chinese officials. Today, I talk with Benedict Rogers about his book, China's history, its rise as a global power, its record on human rights, and what the future holds for the Chinese Communist Party and the people under its thumb. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Benedict Rogers is the co-founder and chief executive of Hong Kong Watch. He launched Hong Kong Watch together with other co-founders in Speaker's House in the British Parliament on December 10th, 2017, just two months after he was denied entry to Hong Kong on the orders of Beijing, and served as the chair of trustees of Hong Kong Watch from 2017 through 2020. 
before joining Hong Kong Watch as the chief executive in September 2020. He was the East Asia team leader at the International Human Rights Organization, CSW, where he specialized in Myanmar, Indonesia, North Korea, and China. He is also the co-founder and deputy chair of the Conservative Party Human Rights Commission, a member of the advisory group of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, an advisor to the World Uyghur Congress, senior analyst for East Asia at CSW, a trustee of several other charities, author of six books, and a regular contributor to international media. He has testified in hearings in the British Parliament, European Parliament, Japanese Parliament, and United States Congress, and is a regular speaker around the world. Between 1997 and 2002, he lived and worked as a journalist in Hong Kong, and in 2003, he lived and worked in Washington, D.C. He is the author of the new book, The China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny, which we'll be discussing today. Benedict Rogers, welcome to Act in Line. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So your book is The China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. Why don't we start before uh, you talk about your book, and I know that this is talked about in your book, talk about your background, uh, your experience with China, and how you came to be so involved in issues surrounding China in the modern world. Yes. Well, I first went to China when I was just 18 years old. I, I took a a year off between high school and university, which is quite a common thing to do in the UK. And But instead of going kind of backpacking or traveling around the world, I um, went specifically to China to teach English for six months uh, in the city of Qingdao on the east coast of China. I had an absolutely wonderful time. I made a lot of friends there. And I always say uh, when I talk about China today that um, Contrary to what the Chinese regime would want you to believe, uh, I am not at all uh, anti-China. In fact, I'm very pro-China as a country, as a as a people. It's the Chinese Communist Party that I'm critical of, uh, and my love for China goes back to that time when I was 18. I then travelled regularly for for many years in and out of China, and I lived in Hong Kong for the first five years after the handover. It was my first job after university, so I really spent most of my adult life um, in and around uh, China. What brought you to uh, teaching English in China? Where did uh, where the inspiration for that come from? The inspiration came, uh, essentially, I wanted to uh, take this year off, but I wanted to do something uh, constructive with it. I didn't want to just go traveling. Um, and I wasn't initially sure where uh, I might uh, uh, try to go. Um, but my father came home from work one one day and he had a colleague whose daughter had uh, done exactly what I uh, went on to do and, and spent six months teaching English in China. And um, uh, she had shared her experience and, uh, and, and really recommended it. And I think what appealed particularly was my family was very well-traveled. Both parents had traveled a lot um, in their lives. Uh, and I'd been privileged um, as a child to be taken to interesting parts of the world by my parents. But China was the one country that nobody in my family had been to. So there was a sense that it was, you know, something new, something different and um, a, a bit of an adventure, really. 
What did you learn about China through that experience of actually being there, experiencing the people and the culture? Uh, particularly, what what stuck out and what surprised you about, uh, I guess, whatever conceptions you had of China coming into that experience, uh, and what surprised you with what you learned from living there and, and teaching English? I think um, uh, one of the things that surprised me was just how. Uh, friendly and how eager to learn English uh, people were, um, and how how eager to not just learn English language, but um, read English literature and uh, kind of get to know um, uh, the outside world and 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 the Western world. Uh, and I think that uh, stems from you know so many decades of China being closed uh, under under Mao. Um, uh, and then it beginning to open up. This was I was there in 1992, so it had been um, it had gone through a couple of decades of economic opening under Deng Xiaoping, but it was still at the time where it was beginning to open. So there was a real eagerness to uh, to learn uh, about uh, English language, culture, literature, uh, history, um, but also a surprisingly high level of awareness, and and a lot of the students had already very good English, um, and I think a lot of that may have changed uh, now because it, when I was there, it was um, there were signs that the country was opening up, not just economically, but perhaps to a limited extent politically. And I think I'm sure we'll go on to talk about this, but um, in the last ten years, a lot of that has has closed down and it's become much more repressive than it was when I was there. Tell us about your time in Hong Kong. You said you lived there right after the handover. Uh, what was that experience like? What was what was the feeling in Hong Kong after this handover happens during the time you were there? What 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 did what was people's sense of it? Well, I I moved there in September 1997, so literally just 2 months after the handover. Um, and I think there were a mix of, of feelings. There were certainly uh, some people who were apprehensive, um, but there was a general sense that um, it was going to be okay uh, and that um, one country, two systems, the, the model uh, on which uh, uh, Hong Kong was handed over, model that Deng Xiaoping had come up with um, uh, and offered for Hong Kong, that, that that would work. And certainly for the five years that I lived there, I think uh, it was working. Uh, Hong Kong's freedoms during the time that I was there were pretty much intact. Uh, I, I'm sure there were problems beneath the surface, but they were um, they were small. Um, and, and, and actually the only form of um, censorship that I noticed uh, towards the end of my time there was more um, self-censorship on the part of uh, newspaper editors um, rather than uh, Beijing coming in in the way it has done subsequently. Um, so uh, I think there was a generally an optimistic feeling that um, that Hong Kong uh, would continue to be Hong Kong, that it would succeed and it would retain its freedoms. And, and sadly, that's uh, proven not to be the case. When did that start to change, or at least that as you noticed that change really started. So I, I should note as well that um, uh, Ben is in uh, the Acton Institute's documentary film, The Hong Konger, about uh, Jimmy Lai's life. Uh, we And we talk about that transitional period in, in 1997 with the handover. Um, and there's some evidence 
that China was beginning to back away from the agreements that it had made in 1997 pretty quickly, although certainly we've seen that accelerate in, uh, in recent years. When did that change and the real dedicated moving away from the 1997 agreement, when did that really start? Well, I started to see some very small early warning signs towards the end of my five years uh, there. And I described this in the book that I was working on a newspaper that was um, pretty outspoken, was ready to be critical of of Beijing and of the Hong Kong government. And we were able to publish uh, uh, articles then that uh, would be impossible to publish in Hong Kong today. Um, But towards the end of my time there, I did start to see uh, uh, worrying signs. For example, the newspaper was bought by a tycoon who had business interests in mainland China, and he he brought in a new editor and changed uh, the whole tone of the of the newspaper. And that was one of the reasons I decided to leave because I could see the direction it was going in. But I think the real key turning point was um, uh, in 2014 uh, when the Umbrella Movement, the first. Uh, significant protests for democracy uh, ha- happened, and the crackdown uh, on on those protests, uh, and then a succession of events since then, um, and then obviously the the dramatic uh, crackdown was really uh, against the protests in 2019 and the imposition of the national security law. But the turning point, um, as I say, subtle changes towards the end of the first five years after the handover that I could see myself. Um, but but the most serious t- turning point was 2014. Let's back up to, again, when you're teaching uh, English in China. So this is, uh, how close to after Tiananmen is, is this? It's interesting. It was actually only three years after Tiananmen. Was there any knowledge? Was there, you know, how how well-recognized was what happened at Tiananmen Square. Was it ever talked about? Uh, what is the... Because I've, I've interviewed other people, of course, having to do with both uh, the film and just for our podcast. And um, what I've been told, you know, the sense that, like, there's just no now institutional memory from the people of Tiananmen Square inside of China that's essentially been wiped out by the Chinese Communist Party. At, at the time that you were there and experiencing it, was there any or a lot of knowledge of Tiananmen? And, and what was the sense of that? Yes, there definitely was. And what was quite striking was that um, although people were um, very careful in public and, you know, in my classes, uh, uh, I had to avoid any political t- topics, um, in the privacy of people's homes, and I got invited to uh, people's homes regularly for, for dinner, um, uh, people would talk uh, about it, and uh, they knew very much what had happened, and they were, in in some cases, very uh, critical of uh, the regime uh, privately. But a lot of them said um, that they'd lost hope of, of um, uh, any significant change uh, 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 under this uh, Communist Party regime, because and they said that if if there were further protests, they would they would be met uh, in exactly the same way. Um, so there was a lot of um, uh, disillusionment and uh, uh, and and real dislike and and and, and discontent uh, with the regime. So in 2017. I'm reading here from uh, uh, about your book. On the orders of Beijing, you were denied entry into Hong Kong 20 years after having moved to the city and beginning your life as a, a journalist and, and an activist. So two things. Uh, first, 
tell us about your time as a, a journalist in Hong Kong, you know, what you saw, what you covered, uh, and then about the experience of being denied entry in 2017. Mm. So when I was a journalist in Hong Kong, my first job was actually on a, a publication <clears throat> that was focused on China. So I was spending a lot of time traveling into mainland China. I managed to get one uh, edition of that uh, publication. It was a, a monthly uh, business publication. Um, but I managed to get one edition uh, banned from mainland China because I'd done an interview with um, a very prominent labor rights activist called Han Dong Fang, who had actually taken part in the Tiananmen uh, protests in 1989. And he was by this point, living in Hong Kong. And again, this illustrates that at the time, Hong Kong did have a high degree of autonomy because he was able to live in Hong Kong, uh, continue his labor rights work. Uh, he ran a radio station where workers in China could call in with, with complaints. Uh, and, he, and he continued to do that. But I, I did this interview with him and ran it on, on the front uh, cover of the magazine. Um, and the censors in mainland China saw it and, and it uh, was banned. And more experienced journalists at the time said to me, every decent journalist should be banned once uh, in, their, in their career. Um, not too many times because then you can't function, but but at least once as a as a sort of feather in your cap. Um, I then moved on to a daily newspaper, which, as, as I said earlier, was a very um, pro-democracy, free, free speaking, uh, quite bold newspaper, English language. Um, and I was the uh, editorial writer, so I was writing the the newspaper's opinions each day, as well as doing some features and, and columns. And that was quite wide wide ranging. A lot of it was on Hong Kong politics, quite a bit on China, and other uh, other times it was on international regional issues. Um, in terms of my um, uh, experience of being denied entry, yeah, I, I arrived. Uh, essentially, I was. Um, by October 2017, I was planning with others to establish uh, um, an organization called Hong Kong Watch, but we hadn't publicly launched it yet. And I felt that before launching Hong Kong Watch, it was important to uh, go to Hong Kong again. I had been back quite a few times uh, after I'd left in 2002, um, but I felt it was important to go back to uh, talk to people privately. I wasn't planning any um, public events or any media interviews. I, I was just going to meet old friends and, and a few new contacts. But somehow Beijing found out in advance that I was going. And um, I was stopped at the uh, immigration counter when I handed my passport over. Uh, they put my name into the computer and uh, clearly it came up in, uh, in, in flashing lights and they, and they took me aside um, and told me that they had orders from Beijing to uh, deny me entry. They asked me a few questions. There was a slightly funny moment where um, they took me into a corridor behind the immigration counters in order to bring me into an office for, for questioning. And the office was locked. And they said, uh, um, can, can you wait here in the corridor while we go and get the key? Now, obviously, I couldn't have gone anywhere. But what I was able to do was uh, call a couple of key contacts, um, uh, a very key political figure in the pro-democracy movement, and the British consulate. So I was able to alert them. And then when I was actually put on the plane uh, out of Hong Kong, um, I was also able to get a message to one of my contacts to alert the media. So by the time I landed, I actually was flown back to, Hong to Bangkok because I'd flown in from Bangkok. 
And by the time I landed in Bangkok, um, uh, the world's media had been informed. And I then spent many hours uh, on the phone to different reporters. Then I flew back to London and the BBC called me and I was called into the, the, the BBC studios. Uh, the foreign secretary uh, at the time, who was Boris Johnson, uh, made a very strong statement. Uh, the incident was raised in both houses of, of the UK parliament. And I, I always said to um, MPs and members of the House of Lords who were, who were raising it in parliament, it's great that you'll raise this, but don't make it about me. Make it about what this says about Hong Kong and, and where Hong Kong is going. So it did serve to, to put a spotlight on Hong Kong. And I, I think was an early warning sign of, uh, of what, what has sub happened subsequently, which obviously is far, far worse than anything I experienced. Yeah, I do want to come back to the reactions of uh, uh, political leaders, not just in the United Kingdom, but in, in the United States and elsewhere to not just what has been happening in Hong Kong, but what uh, just the, the growth and presence of China on a global stage. And I, I do want to get your thoughts on that. But I do, before we go there, want to cover a couple other topics. Uh, first, uh, what was the inspiration for uh, starting Hong Kong Watch? And uh, tell us more about the organization and the mission of the organization. Well, I had, um, up until 2014, uh, I had not been uh, following or speaking out on, on Hong Kong. I'd stayed in touch with friends, but I hadn't been politically active. But when I saw the umbrella movement in 2014, uh, I knew that something significant was changing in Hong Kong. And I felt as someone who had lived there, and um, I was already by this point working for another human rights organization uh, called Christian Solidarity Worldwide, uh, CSW, working on other issues in, in Asia. Um, and so I felt as someone who'd lived in Hong Kong and who uh, was working in human rights um, that, that I should speak up for Hong Kong. I was very struck in 2014 that uh, how little attention Hong Kong was receiving and how few uh, members of parliament or, or media organizations were, were talking about it. So initially, uh, just as an individual, I started to do what I could, um, writing opinion pieces, talking to MPs. Um, and then um, a number of prominent Hong Kong activists uh, started coming to London. And one by one, they all contacted me um, to ask me if I would arrange meetings for them and, and host them, which I was glad to do. But I realized by 2017 that, first of all, it was unsustainable for me on my own um, in my spare time to do this. I felt we really needed an organization that could devote the resources and time um, to do this full time. Um, but also, uh, I, I felt that there was such a low level of awareness about what was happening in Hong Kong that, uh, again, there was a need for an organization to raise awareness. So I came together with um, a few other people who were thinking along similar lines, and um, we founded Hong Kong Watch. Our, our initial uh, mission uh, was um, because at that point, one country, two systems had not completely gone. It was, it was under pressure and it was being eroded, but it was still there in part. So our original mission was to um, gen generate international pressure to uh, uphold one country, two systems and uh, and Hong Kong's freedoms. Um, of course, uh, that mission has rather changed in the last uh, two or three years when it's become clear that one country, two systems has gone, China has completely broken its promises, and, and Hong Kong's freedoms have been totally uh, dismantled. And so our mission now really is to uh, uh, 
keep the pressure up on on uh, Hong Kong through sanctions and, and other uh, punitive measures to keep the spotlight on political prisoners um, uh, and to uh, help um, Hong Kongers who've come out of Hong Kong, uh, either to the UK or to Canada, uh, the US, Australia, uh, to to settle um, and to and to build their new lives, and, and particularly we have a program of um, civic and political education to help Hong Kongers in the UK and Canada uh, specifically um, know how to engage with our political systems and what their rights in their their new homes are. Um, and I would say that probably our one of our biggest um, achievements was that very soon after we started Hong Kong Watch um, in early 2018. Uh, we identified the BNO scheme uh, as something that we should uh, uh, put pressure on the British government to uh, to act on in order to provide um, a lifeline for Hong Kongers uh, to get out of Hong Kong and come to the UK should they need to do so. And and so uh, we began really from 2018 um, advocating for, for that. And we were delighted when the British government uh, we were very sad that the circumstances meant this was necessary, but we were delighted that the government did act and um, and has offered this pathway for uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of Hong Kongers to come to the UK. And I think it's fair to say that happened at least in part because of the, uh, the groundwork uh, that we did. A month or two ago, I uh, interviewed for this podcast um, uh, Winston Marshall, the former uh, member of the band Mumford & Sons, who also does work with uh, welcoming uh, Hong Kong expats into the United Kingdom. And he he made a very good point that I hadn't quite thought of in this way, that there's the – I think this is, I would say, largely true, and and listeners can email me angrily if they disagree with me, uh, at least from an American perspective – of kind of people coming from Hong Kong that has been viewed largely as this great center of business and finance. And there's just this uh, within our imagination thinking, you know, these uh, people who are fleeing Hong Kong with the uh, the deprivations they're experiencing there now um, are coming with, you know, with means, uh, this kind of view of, of, you know, the Hong Kong businessman, I think, being the one who's uh, uh, that sticks in people's minds. And Winston made a good point about like, you know, a lot of these people, uh, are younger, much younger, um, you know, not particularly well off, um, not of means, and then all of a sudden being dropped into an entirely new country where they uh, um, largely don't speak the language. And as he made the point, is like, if you just got dropped into a different place like that, go open a bank account. Like, just the difficulty of being able to get enmeshed into a new country and a new culture like that, um, that kind of help is, of course, going to be incredibly important for people who are uh, coming from such a different place. Mm. Absolutely. That's that's uh, very true. I mean, of course, there are many Hong Kongers who are either do have means and are wealthy, speak English, um, and, and, are, and, and Hong Kongers in general are remarkably resilient and, and independent and entrepreneurial. Um, but Winston is absolutely right that the, there are certainly uh, many Hong Kongers who um, who don't fit our sort of stereotype and, and don't have English, um, don't have uh, much much uh, means, and they certainly need help. But e- even those who who have uh, wealth, uh, you know, culturally um, uh, and in terms of um, finding uh, you know, a place to live, uh, uh, transferring their professional skills into a new job, um, finding schools for their kids, all of, all of that requires uh, support. So um, I think in the long term, uh, Hong Kongers 
whichever society they move to, whether it's the UK, Canada, the US, in the long term, they will uh, set, settle and integrate very well. And they will be, in my view, a, um, a, a, a contributor to society. Um, but in the short term, they, they all need some form of uh, support and assistance and, and welcome. As I've traveled with our film, The Hong Konger, for the last uh, more than a year now, uh, one of the standard lines that I've used in talking about at least the, um, the American view and the American experience vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong uh, is that the United States, for both good reasons and bad reasons over the last about eight years, has been a very inward-looking nation. We have been very focused on what is going on within the borders of the United States. And I would like to think that at a different time, um, we would have been as focused on what was going on in Hong Kong as we were to what was happening in Eastern Europe in the 1980s under Soviet domination. Uh, talk about what is the level of attention uh, to Hong Kong issues in the United Kingdom um, I, I think we would probably both agree with both of our countries that we would like to see uh, more attention paid there. But what, what is the uh, what is the level of attention and understanding of what is happening in Hong Kong in the United Kingdom right now? Mm. Well, um, for, firstly, I, I would say that whilst I agree with you in regard to the United States overall, I, I think the U.S. Um, did respond um, in some ways better than the U.K. did uh uh, at the time of the, the the real crisis point in 2019 and 2020, and uh, for example, the US imposed uh, sanctions uh, in response to what was happening in Hong Kong, which the UK did not. Um, uh, and uh, both um, the former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, and the current administration, in those critical years, I, I, I would say did did a lot. But the situation now, I think, in both our countries is. It has fallen uh, off the agenda. Uh, in part, that's because th that always happens. The world moves on. There's a crisis point uh, in one particular place. In Hong Kong's case, it was 2019, 2020. Uh, and then obviously now the world is focused on Ukraine and, and, and on, on Sudan and, and other issues. Um, but uh, I think it, it is. Um, it definitely has fallen down the agenda. Um, I think in the UK, um, my concern is that um, the UK has uh, given our history with Hong Kong and given that we are the uh, co-signatory to an international treaty with China, the, the Sino-British Joint Declaration, and given that, for example, Jimmy Lai, uh, who, who, um, uh, about whom you, you made the brilliant film, The, the Hong Konger, uh, is a British citizen, the UK government is not doing nearly enough. Um, it deserves credit for the BNO scheme. Um, but uh, it, it has, has not introduced any consequences for the Chinese government for, for what they've done in breaking that treaty with the UK. Um, and so we're pushing hard for the UK to, to impose sanctions um, and, to, and to keep up the pressure. Um, and I worry, actually, that the UK is reverting now. There are a few years where um, the relationship with China definitely cooled um, because of the Hong Kong situation and because of other issues uh, in China. But I worry that the British government is um, is trying to return to uh, a sort of business as usual relationship. Um, one of our trade ministers was recently in Hong Kong, the first ministerial visit um, in several years. And uh, also the architect of 
the crackdown in Hong Kong, China's vice president, Han Zheng, uh, attended the coronation of, of King Charles uh, recently. Now, to be fair to the British government, they didn't invite him. They invited China and China chose to send him. Um, but uh, I, I think the British government is not doing what it should be uh, to, to keep up the pressure, to speak up for Jimmy Lai, to, um, uh, to, to make it clear that there, sh there should be consequences for China's actions. Why do you think the British government's response has been weaker than you would like it to be? Is it uh, more to do with the, and I mean, we certainly see this in the United States here, the economic power of China? Um, does it have to do with, you know, uh, kind of the, the residue of issues connected to Hong Kong um, being a former part of the British Empire? Where, where, does, where does it come from? I think it is primarily um, this uh, um, sort of fixation with China's economic uh, influence and the need to do business uh, with China. And in my view, you know, we should have learned the lessons of uh, of COVID. Um, we we I thought we were learning the lessons uh, when we had a big debate about uh, Huawei's uh, involvement in our five G technology, and thankfully the right decision was made in the end uh, on that. Not to allow them in, um, but I, I, it doesn't. It appears that we haven't really learned all the lessons, and that we still uh, want to pursue that that business relationship. And I, I'm not someone who says we should do no business with China. I, I don't think that's uh, realistic. But I think we should be um, uh, de-risking, as I think is the new, new term to use, de-risking our relationship um, and diversifying our economic relationships around the world. And and reducing dependency on China, but it doesn't appear that we're, uh, we're we're moving towards that. I want to return to a couple of the topics you cover in your book, The China Nexus, uh, human rights, genocide, and then one that was actually very surprising to me that um, despite uh, my immersion into China-related issues over the last two years and being uh, a part of producing this documentary film about Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong, it was even very much news to me, was the uh, the organ harvesting program that uh, goes mm. on there. Why don't we first talk about China's human rights record? Um, lay that out for us. Uh, and of course, we can go back to... Uh, <laughs> We can, of course, go back to the Cultural Revolution. We can go back to the millions of people who died at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party through the uh, the 1950s into the 60s and the 70s. Um, but you know, talk talk about it both historically and in terms of the modern Chinese state and their record on human rights. Mm. Well, the Chinese Communist Party, of course, has has always been uh, repressive by by nature and by instinct. Um, and during uh, Mao Zedong's rule, of course, China was um, much more uh, closed to the rest of the world. Um, uh, and uh, as you say, millions of people died as a result of um, his various, uh, both economic and, and political uh, uh, initiatives. Um, uh, what seemed to happen after, uh, well, in the 80s, before uh, the Tiananmen Square Massacre, and then even in the 90s and early 2000s, after the Tiananmen Square massacre, was that the the regime was um, willing to allow a certain amount of of opening. Um, of course, there were always limits to that, and there were always red lines. But 
when I was there in the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, there was a certain uh, limited space, uh, for example, for uh, religious practice, for some degree of uh, civil society. Uh, I remember meeting Chinese human rights lawyers who were actually able to um, take on cases uh, within the Chinese judicial system. Uh, and uh, they, they knew that um, they were under surveillance. They knew there were red lines that they couldn't cross. But within the space they had, they were actually able to, to do things. There was some degree of independent um, uh, media and, and uh, bloggers and, and, and so on. And then it, it seems that um, from about 2008, just after uh, China had held the um, Beijing Olympics, and around that time, there was a movement that was known as Charter 08, um, led by the Nobel laureate Liu Xiaobo, who, of course, then was arrested and, and died in prison. Um, uh, I think that uh, at that point, the, the regime got rather scared and, and perhaps thought that they had allowed uh, too much space for dissent um, uh, and decided to, to crack down. And so you saw a tightening uh, in the years from 2008 onwards. Um, and then Xi Jinping's rule, and he he took over in 2012, um, really intensified that. And under Xi Jinping, um, all of that space pretty much has has gone. So um, we, we're seeing now uh, the worst uh, persecution of Christians that we've seen really since the Cultural Revolution, um, including uh, destruction of thousands of, of churches and crosses and uh, portraits of Xi Jinping and other, other party leaders being put up. Um, uh, in churches alongside uh, religious uh, symbols. Um, uh, we're seeing uh, uh, all those lawyers that I talked about, um, uh, many of them have disappeared or been jailed or disbarred. Um, uh, and uh, media is now totally state controlled um, and freedom of expression. I mean, if you say anything in uh, on any of the Chinese social media channels, WeChat and, and Weibo, anything critical of the party it 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 gets deleted instantly and and you're very likely to get a, get arrested um so it is really the worst uh, time now for for human rights uh in in many decades and that sense that i had in the 90s and first decade of the 2000s that things were moving in a better direction uh has has gone completely um and on top of the so there's the repression of of uh dissent and freedom of expression in mainland China itself. But then, of course, the continued atrocities in Tibet, which often gets forgotten uh, these days, um, and what's increasingly recognized as a genocide of, of the Uyghurs. So it's a it's an appalling human rights record. Yeah, the, uh, the, the genocide of the Uyghurs is probably, of course, the one that stands out um, the most. Uh, I mean, this really is a ethnic cleansing campaign against a Muslim minority population in part of China. Um, I, I, so I guess I'll tie this to a question of, you know, going back to what you were saying about the 1990s, uh, there, there was this belief that the economic liberalization of China would lead uh, in, in, in at least some way to some kind of a political liberalization that, you know, the kind of the theory was 
if you're going to have that kind of economic liberalization, you're going to build a middle class and that middle class is going to demand uh, more rights within the political sphere. Um, you know, certainly that is not what happened. Uh, so t- talk about a, a couple of things. Talk about um, a, a little bit more about the, the Uyghur genocide um, as well as and I think we can tie this to the regime under Xi Jinping, um, who is, at least in my understanding of this and correct me if you think I'm wrong, uh, a departure from the direction that Chinese Communist Party leadership had been going prior to him. That, um, you know, is it unfair for people to start making comparisons, uh, at, at least attitudinally and leadership style, to Mao? Uh, certainly the body count does not hold up, and that's one that we certainly hope uh, we never have to make a comparison to ever again. Uh, but talk about uh, both of those, the, uh, the, the Uyghur genocide, fill people in more on that, and then the leadership of China under Xi Jinping. Mm, absolutely. Well, perhaps I can start with Xi Jinping and I'll, I'll come on to the, the genocide. Um, I think the comparisons with Mao um, are, are certainly valid to a certain extent. First of all, um, he is by far the most ideological leader that there has been since Mao. Um, his predecessors were all much more kind of technocrats, pragmatists, who, yes, were, were repressive, they were authoritarian, but they they took a more pragmatic uh, approach and were prepared to allow a certain uh, space uh, um, in order to pursue the economic uh, growth and and to pursue I, I think um, uh, closer relations with um, the rest of the world. Um, she has taken a much more repressive approach at home, but also a much more aggressive approach uh, on the world stage, um, and has. Uh, uh, I think fractured and and caused tensions in China's relations with other countries in a way that none of his predecessors uh, did. Um, but also, he's um, like Mao. He's he's brought back the cult of personality. Uh, none of his predecessors uh, uh, had that. Um, not even Deng Xiaoping, who was perhaps the closest in terms of um, uh, being a, the the sort of paramount leader. But um, even Deng Xiaoping didn't have a personality cult. Um, she has pursued that. There's Xi Jinping thought has been added to the constitution. Um, uh, pictures of Xi Jinping are displayed prominently uh, in in public spaces, uh, and uh, crucially, he's abolished term limits. Um, uh, from uh, Deng Xiaoping onwards, uh, the, the leaders um, had uh, a, a term limit; they could serve two terms, uh, two five-year terms. So. Uh, Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao uh, both had 10 years each, and then they retired. Uh, Xi Jinping has abolished term limits and theoretically could be a uh, leader for for the rest of his life or, or for as long as he wants to be. Um, so so that's uh, the comparisons with, with Mao. In terms of the Uyghur genocide, <clears throat> um, it, it has been recognized as a genocide both by the previous US administration uh, and the current US administration. Uh, by several parliaments around the world, uh, by an independent tribunal in the UK, chaired by one of the UK's top uh, lawyers, uh, Sir Geoffrey Nice. Uh, and um, uh, even the United Nations hasn't recognized it as a genocide, but they have uh, used the term crimes against humanity. Uh, and what's happened over the last uh, uh, six or seven years or so um, is uh, the establishment of um, uh, a whole network of prison camps uh, in the Xinjiang region where where the Uyghurs 
uh, are um, with um, at least a million, and it may well be uh, several million uh, Uyghurs uh, and other uh, Muslim minorities uh, incarcerated in these prison camps, subjected to forced labor, uh, um, sexual violence, uh, horrific forms of torture. Um, but also, and this is where the term genocide is particularly relevant, there's been a, a campaign of forced sterilization uh, and forced abortion um, uh, of, of, uh, uh, against Uyghur women, um, a, a, a real assault on Uyghur culture, language, religion, um, Uyghur Muslims who do simple religious acts that any adherent of any religion uh, would regard as perfectly normal, like reading their uh, uh, holy book, the, the Quran, um, praying and fasting during Ramadan, um, wearing a beard of a certain length. Um, all of those things could uh, could and do result in them uh, being thrown into these prison camps. So, um, And uh, Uyghurs have been used um, as forced labor, not only in the prison camps, but actually transported around the country on, on trains um, to work in the factories of supply chains for, for global multinationals. That is a point that uh, I, I wish more people would dwell on, that the I, I'm with you personally, on uh, that you know, I, it is both, it's just impractical to think that we are going to get to a point where we are going to sever any and all economic ties with China. But I, I do desire for people to be conscious consumers and to understand um, the origin of some of the Chinese-made products that they may be purchasing, um, to at least be aware that there right. is a high likelihood or a decent likelihood that um, forced slave labor likely of the Uyghur population was utilized to make many of the things that may show up in their Amazon po uh, package on their doorstep. That's absolutely right. Uh, and I think um, uh, I, I think much greater consumer awareness is necessary. I, I do give the US a lot of credit for legislation that was, uh, has, was passed over the last couple of years um, that does prohibit uh, products um, made by forced labor from Xinjiang uh, coming to the United States. Uh, and uh, I, as I understand it, it, it sets very high uh, levels of, of proof for uh, importers to be able to prove that products were not made by forced labor. So that's very welcome. And I, I wish other countries, including my own, would, would do the same. Um, but consumers also have a responsibility to um, learn more. And uh, as far as possible, it's not possible all the, always, but as far as possible to uh, check what they're buying and um, uh, and 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 boycott uh, anything that might have been made by forced labor. Tell us about the organ harvesting programs. Well, this is uh, a really uh, particularly shocking um, uh, crime against humanity uh, that uh, the regime is committing. Um, essentially, they are um, targeting prisoners of conscience, and in particular, particularly. Um, Falun Gong practitioners. Uh, Falun Gong is a spiritual practice uh, um, d derived from uh, a school of, of uh, Buddhism. Um, uh, and uh, Falun Gong practitioners lead particularly healthy lives. They don't smoke, they don't drink. Um, so their organs are very healthy. Uh, and uh, the regime has been persecuting Falun Gong very severely for uh, the last few decades. Uh, and they seem to have targeted them uh, for uh, the extraction of, of uh, organs, uh, which uh, they then uh, sell. Um, and it is 
it's very hard. Uh, when I first heard about this this awful uh, abuse, um, I was somewhat skeptical because it sounds so shocking, uh, and also because unlike other human rights violations, it's much much harder to prove because by definition, you know, the 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 victim is dead. Um, the witnesses are the the doctors who've carried out the operation, and they're very unlikely to speak out. Um, and and the prison guards and and, and police. Um, so it's it's hard to prove, but um, the the body of evidence has grown over the years. There was a very important um, report carried out by a former Canadian uh, parliamentarian and, and government minister, David Kilgore, together with a Canadian lawyer, David Matus, and an American journalist, uh, uh, Ethan Goodman. Um, and they compiled uh, a lot of the evidence that existed, and they also um, carried out research by telephoning uh, hospitals in China, which were advertising uh, for, for organ transplants um, and organ transplants for, for foreigners uh, around the world. And so their researchers uh, posed as um, interested uh, potential pa patients uh, and made inquiries with dozens of hospitals. And they found out that uh, organs were available um, literally within a matter of uh, weeks or even sometimes days uh, in a way that in your country or, or mine, um, uh, we, we would normally wait uh, quite some months uh, b before a, a matching organ could be found. In China, it can be found with remarkable speed, and they don't have a tradition of organ donation uh, like we do. So the big question, given the number of transplant operations they're able to carry out, the speed that they can do them with, uh, and the fact that they don't have a pool of donors, the big question is, where are these organs coming from? And China has not answered that question. And the evidence from, from those who have been able to get evidence out uh, is that uh, it's coming from, from forced uh, organ harvesting. Um, and most importantly, I mentioned Sir Geoffrey Nice earlier, who chaired the Uyghur Tribunal. Um, in uh, uh, 2019, uh, he chaired a, uh, an inquiry into this issue of forced organ harvesting. Um, and the key thing about him and and the inquiry body was that it was made up of people who had no previous uh, agenda with China. They were not uh, human rights activists. They were not anti-China people. They were basically people who who had no previous background with China, and therefore were able to look at this entirely uh, independently. Um, and they concluded, based on all the evidence they heard, that forced organ harvesting is happening uh, on a on a systematic level and that it amounts to a crime against humanity. I want to close here with two final questions for you. The first, in your opinion, what is the stability of the regime of the Chinese Communist Party currently running China? I, I remember hearing an analogy from um, uh, a, a China expert here in the States that I, I heard speak that made a comparison to uh, think of it like marble, um, it's very strong, but it is brittle. There's no flexibility to it whatsoever. Um, in your opinion, how stable is the Chinese Communist Party's regime in China? I think it's less stable than it would like us to believe uh, for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, first of all, the sort of unspoken pact between the Chinese Communist Party and the people over the last few decades, uh, was that it would um, preside over an economic miracle that would uh, result in dramatically improved living standards for people. 
and in return, um, uh, the people would keep them in power and, and would not uh, uh, rise up against them. Um, and part of that deal also was some limited amount of space that we've spoken about without, uh, you know, with with with, lim with limitations. And that deal itself is is um, has been undermined by Xi Jinping because um, economic growth, uh, the eco economic miracle, is not what it used to be. Um, Xi Jinping seems to have an ideological uh, vendetta against uh, entrepreneurs, and and you know a number of entrepreneurs have disappeared or been brought down. Um, uh, and he seems to be much more against private enterprise than uh, previous Chinese leaders were. Uh, uh, and he's, of course, become much more repressive. So, so that deal uh, has gone, and therefore the question is: um, At what point uh, will uh, the Chinese people turn against the regime? We saw a hint of discontent in uh, the end of last year in those protests against the very severe draconian COVID lockdown. And what was interesting in those protests was that the the chant coming from some of the protesters was not uh, "lift the lockdown." It was uh, Xi Jinping stepped down, CCP stepped down. Uh, and it's the first time I've heard that being being chanted really since since Tiananmen. So that's an indicator that uh, there is discontent. I'm also hearing more discontent from Chinese students overseas, uh, which uh, we never used to to hear. But I would also say that I think this is a regime that by its own actions shows that it is um, very insecure. Uh, it didn't need to crack down uh, so totally on Hong Kong and completely destroy uh, uh, Hong Kong's freedoms and, and way of life in the way that it has. Um, it didn't need to commit a genocide against the Uyghurs uh, to exercise its its control. And then in a more in a much more uh, tiny and um, almost slightly humorous way, you know, I've been the recipient of threatening letters from uh, uh, anonymous sources in China um, coming to my home address in London. Some of my neighbors, even my mother has received letters uh, telling her to tell me to stop doing what I'm doing. And if if a regime in Beijing that is as strong and powerful as we think it is, uh, is worried about the actions of you know, one very unimportant individual like me uh, in London, that suggests that it's, uh, it, it's more insecure than we perhaps realize. I think that may dovetail well into my final question for you. What makes you hopeful about the future of China and the future of the world coexisting with China? I think um, several things uh, make me hopeful, although in the current circumstances, it's um, it's not easy to see hope. But I think we, we always have to hold on to hope um, uh, for the long term. I think, firstly, history shows that uh, dictators don't last forever. And we've seen change come uh, at times and in places where we least expect it. We we didn't see the, the fall of the Soviet Union or the fall of apartheid in South Africa. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful for that reason. Um, I, I'm hopeful also because I, I believe the regime in Beijing is, is a re regime fundamentally built on lies. Uh, and I think in the long term, truth always uh, wins over lies, um, even if it doesn't feel like it at, at the moment. Um, but I think fundamentally, the extraordinary courage of um, people uh, in China, in Hong Kong, uh, among the T Tibetans and Uyghurs, um, who uh, for so long have, um, and, and at great risk to themselves, have spoken out against the regime. Uh, and uh, I think as long as we have people 
like Jimmy Lai. I mean, even if Jimmy Lai, as is likely, spends the rest of his life in jail, I think there are other uh, people who will uh, have similar courage uh, who will continue the fight. Benedict Rogers is the co-founder and chief executive of Hong Kong Watch. He appears in the Acton Institute's documentary film, The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom, which you can now stream on demand at freejimmylai.com. He is the author of the book, The China Nexus, 30 Years In and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny, which we've been discussing today. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today on Acton Line. A great pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.